maybe 30 or 20 years ago, a Saudi might have said, I'm Muslim and I'm Arab and I'm Saudi. Now they might say, I'm Saudi and I'm Arab and I'm Muslim. You know, they're trying to radically refashion their country and they need help from the best experts in the world. Do you want to have your country's people be disqualified from that because of some essentially antiquated point of view about how countries work together? In recent months, it can feel like Saudi Arabia is intent on buying the world. It's bought up much of golf, sports teams, many of the globe's best soccer players to its own domestic league, and it owns huge chunks of many of the biggest companies on the planet. But Saudi Arabia is not just on a shopping spree. The once insular, oil-rich kingdom is transforming into a major diplomatic and military player, a pivotal actor in the energy transition, and looks set to host high-end cultural events like the FIFA World Cup. You know, they know that buying a football club immediately brings you a billboard into a global game that allows you to completely reposition yourself and rebrand yourself. It feels like we're entering the era of the Saudi project. But what exactly is the kingdom trying to achieve, and will it succeed? Coming soon from Intelligence Squared, the Saudi project is a new podcast series seeking to answer some of these questions and more. Britain does have choices. It's not either or situation. We either indulge Mohammed bin Salman or boycott Mohammed bin Salman. There is a third choice. Search The Saudi Project wherever you get your podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. Well, ladies and gentlemen, good evening. This is an evening I've been looking forward to for a very long time, to meet someone who I've thought for 30 years is the greatest writer on politics in our time. And he has had... A pretty demanding day, actually. He has done an interview on the Today program, done one for Newsnight, spoken to the Parliamentary Press Gallery, which I would not wish on anybody. Uh, uh, And this is what we have subjected him to so far in the United Kingdom today. And this is his opportunity to relax with 600 friends and admirers uh, for uh, an hour and a half or so this evening. Uh, You know a great deal about him. You're, You're going to learn a lot more about his work, I hope, tonight. Um, But he has won, his books have won countless awards. I I will not list them. They include two Pulitzer Prizes, um, almost really all the literary awards of the United States. Uh, The reviews of his work in Britain and the United States have, of course, been fantastic. He is highly regarded, his work is highly regarded by politicians. I don't know whether he regards that as a compliment or not. We will see uh, in a moment. Twenty years ago, um, I used to discuss his work with my then speechwriter, one young George Osborne, who is now... Chancellor of the Exchequer and an equal admirer is our former Prime Minister Gordon Brown and to be uh, 
unanimously admired by both of those gentlemen is a quite exceptional thing in life, uh, I, can, I can tell you. Uh, and he and I are going to discuss his, uh, his work uh, and what we can learn from it, particularly about the, uh, the exercise of political power. Um, and we will do that until about halfway through our proceedings, and then we will, we will open questions uh, to the audience. So, Bob, let me begin by asking you about how you started on all of this. I, I, I've seen that you have said about how you got into being a biographer and a historian. You said very modestly that it, there was no plan, that it was a series of mistakes, uh, I think you said. <laughs> Uh, describe for us how this began and how your work on, on Robert Moses began. Well, I was a reporter for Newsday, a newspaper on Long Island. I got interested in investigative work and politics. I won a couple of, believe me, really minor journalistic awards. But when you're young and you win anything, you really think you know everything about your subject. And the following thing happened. Robert Moses wanted to build yet another bridge across Long Island Sound. Of course, he had already built the Triborough Bridge, the Bronx Whitestone Bridge, and the Throgsneck Bridge. And he was planning another one, and Newsday had me look into this, and I discovered it was the world's worst idea. The uh, traffic on Long Island was already overwhelming, and this would have brought all the traffic from New England down, and it would have required 12 more lanes on the Long Island Expressway. In addition, the bridge would have had to be so huge that the piers that held it would have to be so big that they would have interfered with the tidal flow in Long Island Sound and actually created pollution there. So I wrote these stories, and uh, the newspaper sent me up to Albany to see how the legislature was regarding it. And I spoke to the governor, Nelson Rockefeller. He understood it was the worst idea ever. Spoke to the assembly speaker. He understood it was the worst idea, the president of the Senate. And I wrote this article and went back to Newsday, thinking I was done. And about two years later, two weeks later, excuse me, I had a friend in... Uh, Albany, and she called me. She said, Bob, you better come back up here. And I said, oh, I don't think that's necessary. I think I've taken care of this. But she said, Robert Moses was up here yesterday, and I think you should come back. And I remember driving up to Albany and walking into the press gallery of the assembly just as they approved the bridge by a vote of something like 183 to 4. And I remember thinking in that moment... Everything I've been writing has sort of been baloney because whether you say it or not in an article, everything I was doing was based on the feeling that in a democracy, political power comes from the ballot box, from being elected, from the people. Yet here was a man who was never elected to anything and he had enough power to turn an entire state government around in a single day and I had no idea, and actually neither did anybody else, where he got this power from. And it was then that I thought that if I really want to write about politics truthfully, I have to find out, because no one knew, where he got his power and how he had been using it for so long. And did you think, Bob, after that... Um defining moment of finding that, that uh, a project that was so uh, 
you know, looked at objectively and dispassionately, should not have been approved, and then it was overwhelmingly approved. Did you expect then to find such an incredible um, network and accumulation of power? Did, did you have any foretaste, any foreknowledge of the sheer massive extent of how in so many of the uh, commissions and departments of New York City the power of this man would run into them? That's a terrific question because that's exactly what happened. So then I started to think, so we lived on Long Island, we would drive on the Long Island Expressway which he built the Southern State Parkway, which he built, the Northern State Parkway. When we had a day off, we'd go to Jones Beach when he built or one of his other parks that he built. If we went to New York City, we'd go to Lincoln Center, which he was responsible for, or the United Nations. Robert Moses arranged that. So I gradually came to feel... This was... I'm making myself sound like it all came to me too quickly. It was gradually. I said, my God, this one man created the entire landscape in which we lived. And then you looked at his career and you said, he's been in power for 44 years. He's been in power through six governors and five mayors. He shaped the whole world in which we live. Uh, how, did, how, did, how did he do it? Do you know? What, what is the story here? So I originally thought I would do this as a long newspaper series, but I came to realize I could never do that. I'd have to do it in a book. I must say no one was really interested in publishing the book. I, we sta- I started it for what is really, Einer and I used to call the world's smallest advance. And the publisher that we had, uh, my first publisher, really wasn't, and he used to say, I gave him about half the book at some point because I needed more money, which he wouldn't give me because he said, I guess you don't understand, Bob. This is a good book. We like it here, but no one is going to buy a book on Robert Moses. I remember his exact words. So we're not prepared to go beyond the terms of the contract, which meant you'll get your other half when you finish and not before. (laughs) <laughs> and this was um, the book that turned that, that this what was going to be a long article yes. is now the the twelve hundred page book yes. and is now being published in the UK and yes. which I think you wrote you wrote much more than that yes okay. well <laughs> the book as you read it or hold it is seven hundred thousand words but it was in fact not as a rough draft but as a finished polished book. A million fifty thousand words, <laughs> which is one. So we had. So I asked my editor. By this time, I had switched publishers to an editor who was very good publisher, who was really very supportive. And I said, "Can't we do it in two volumes?" And he said, "I." He used the word "I" a lot. I might get people interested in Robert Moses once. I could never get them interested in him twice. <laughs> Well, how wrong he was. I think um, if, if many of us would think that if that uh, original version was still existing somewhere, we would happily go out and buy it. Uh, well, thank because you. this is a... For those who haven't read yet The Power Broker, Robert Moses and the, and the Fall of New York, which, which I obviously strongly recommend, it is an amazing tale. And I think, I think it would be worth telling people tonight, for those who haven't read it, how Robert Moses exercised that 
power. How did he, in a, what's your short, briefest description you could make of um, how a man never elected to public office for more than 40 years held this power over mayors, over governors, over the chairman of every commission, over congressmen? What was the, the source of that power? You ask terrific questions. I'm not, that, that's hard to answer fast, but I'll try. So Robert Moses, when he was young, thought he was going to be elected, either mayor or governor. But Moses' personality was that of a dictator. His, his gesture when in public speaking was to smack down his hand on, on the podium. His person, and so he ran for governor. When the campaign started, he was the most popular figure in New York State. He lost, but during the election, people got a look at him. And he lost by what is still to this day the largest majority anyone ever lost by in New York. So he realized that he was never going to get elected. Moses was quite a brilliant man. One thing I hope we get a chance to talk about was his his brilliance. Mm -hmm. What he did was he took a yellow legal pad into a little room adjoining the office that he had. And he drafted legislation, I'll oversimplify here, that nobody understood. But buried in the legislation, it was ostensibly legislation to create public authorities, which had already been, but to make something different out of public authorities and to create new ones. And buried in these pages and pages, there are 41 pages of one document, are these sentences which contradict then people thought of public authorities as something that uh, sells bonds to get money to build, let's say, a bridge, collects tolls until the bonds are paid off, and then goes out of business. Ostensibly, in the first few pages, that's what this legislation did. But buried in around page 31 or something were sentences which completely negated that and basically gave the chairman of the tribe of his different authorities, he had 12 at one time, gave them power to keep refinancing bonds so they could stay in business forever and the chairman could stay in business forever and the chairman had absolute power. Now how, what, so for 40 years... If you were driving a car in the city of New York and you went through a bridge or a tunnel and you paid a quarter or half a dollar or whatever the toll was then, you were basically paying it directly to Robert Moses. So the average annual surplus from these authorities was, it's been so long since I wrote this book, this figure may be wrong, I think was $32 million a year. The city of New York was in effect bankrupt. At the most, it had two or three million dollars a year. So the contracts for public works in New York were given out by Robert Moses. He didn't have to go to anybody else, a board of estimate or a city council. He could decide himself who got contracts. And he would decide on the basis, let's say you have a bridge, you have insurance, uh, have to have insurance policies on that bridge. But the bridge is not going to fall down. This is before the age of terrorism. So whoever, whatever brokers are going, insurance brokers are going to get this, uh, are just going to make money. He would give out the commissions on the basis of 
what politicians controlled how many votes in the assembly of the state of New York. He would give public relations retainers to the right public relations men, legal fees to the lawyers, uh, bond, the bond underwriting to bond underwriters, uh, contracts to the right contractors. Moses himself was completely honest. He had no interest in money. But he made himself, in effect, the lo- I think I used the phrase in the book, the locus of corruption in New York. He was the system so that nobody who was elected could oppose him because the system would then make sure they were out of office. I think I've oversimplified that but a lot. But no, but, but I, well, I think that's... Um... As ever, brilliantly described, including the people who haven't heard this story before, of, of creating independent authorities, creating overlapping terms of office, overlapping. so that he was always beyond the reach of uh, elected you officials. Ju- you just said, uh, I forgot, overlap. So he made sure that his term, there were four-year terms, they never ended in the same year. So a mayor might want to... Um, uh, oust him as head of one authority, but he'd still be in power for, with, with 11 more. It's a very interesting... He pursu- in order to do this, he had to get the mayor of New York, the legendary Fiorello LaGuardia, very pa- a man who liked power himself and was quite brilliant in power. He persuaded LaGuardia that these, that these legislation that was really just standard legislation. So LaGuardia... Uh, approved it for the legislature, and the legislature passed it. There comes a point, a year or two later, when LaGuardia, they have a dispute, and LaGuardia writes Moses. We find this letter in LaGuardia saying, listen, you're not the boss here. I'm the boss here. Robert Moses writes back in hand across the letter, Mayor, you better read the contract. (laughs) (laughs) And your argument, Bob, is that uh, one of your arguments in this book, and, and, in the, and it's a parallel argument, I think, to, um, to your books on Lyndon Johnson, which we will come on to, is that, uh, as, as you put it, the, the, the cliché says that power always corrupts, but what is seldom said is that power always reveals. Uh, If I continue the quote, you say, when a man is climbing, trying to persuade others to give him power, concealment is necessary. But as a man obtains more power, camouflage becomes less necessary. Um, And uh, tell us about what was revealed of Robert Moses as he accumulated this enormous power in New York. Well, when he was young, and he was accum- when he had these great dreams of dreams like Jones Beach, the power was he wanted power for the sake of his dreams, um, and he created some great dreams. But as you know, power in many ways is like a drug. If you use it, you need more larger and larger doses. Moses was a real user, and. As the decades pass, and remember we're talking about a career of almost half a century, 44 years, the things that he selects to build, he he selects on the basis of what can give him more power. And instead of building the beautiful parks and parkways, the real power is in public housing. So if you come to New York on your next trip, when you can see, if you want to, as you're flying in, if you're flying into Kennedy, 
um, on your left, you're going to see a, when Manhattan Island starts, for like two and a half miles from the tip of Manhattan Island up, you're going to see a dull red, reddish brick wall of buildings. It's hundreds of apartment houses. That's low-income housing, most, most of it. And when you see this housing, what we didn't talk about, we talked about Moses, Moses was a very racist man. He was one of the most racist individuals, actually, that, that I've ever encountered in my life. And he, and he also was a very arrogant man. Um, he didn't want to do things for the poor. Can I just interject? Mm-hmm. So he built um, Jones Beach, this beautiful beach, uh, was an inspiration for him to find this sandbar and build this beach on it, but he didn't want poor people using it, and he particularly didn't want poor people of color using it. So if you happen on your trip to New York to get into a car and drive out to Jones Beach, you will find bridge, as you drive on the parkways, you'll find bridge after bridge, it will say clearance 10 feet 9 inches, clearance 11 feet, clearance 9 feet 8 inches. The reason is that buses need clearance of 14 feet. And he didn't, in the 1930s when he built Jones Beach, poor people didn't generally have car, cars. So that he was afraid that they would reach Jones Beach by public transportation. Well, it was easy for him to make sure that the Long, the Long Island Railroad said, well, we'll build a spur to Jones Beach. But it was with his political power, he could just stop that. But he was afraid that in decades to come, people would come out there by buses. So he had, law, law, he had, had laws passed saying that buses could not use his parkway. But his chief aide, who spoke to me with amazing frankness, said to me, well, you know, laws can be changed, but it's very hard to tear down a bridge once it's up. So he built, Robert Moses built, 178 of these bridges that are too low for buses to go through. So when this public housing, when, he, when I started to say, this is why my books are so long. <laughs> <laughs> no, but we're enjoying it just like we enjoy the books. <laughs> well, this public housing was where the power was, because that was where the federal money was going. So he moved into public housing. This is moved into the field of public housing. This is a man who really did not like the poor. He used to feel if he was giving people charity, he wanted them to understand they were getting charity. He wanted to make poor people feel poor. So when you look at these buildings, what you will see is that there's not one piece of architectural immunity on it, not a finial, not a little design in brickwork. They're just like boxes with windows. So Robert Moses, when he was in public housing, built 155,000 apartments. He built a, in a, a, a 1,028 apartment buildings, six, seven, eight-story buildings, with a total of 155,000 apartments which housed almost half a million people at that time. This is the public housing of New York to this day. Uh, and he built it in areas he didn't want the poor people mixing with middle class. So that he contributed 
Only now, a half century later, is New York recovering and starting to blend in housing. But uh, when you asked before how power you know, changes people, sometimes it can cleanse people. And um, there are people that I've written about who, when they get power, suddenly they're freed to do things for people. But in Moses' case, it just intensified the way he had always been. And then you want, let's go on to, okay. um, briefly to, uh, to Lyndon Johnson. Um, because it, it's those books that I think introduced many of us um, outside the United States to, to your work. <clears throat> and you went on from Robert Moses to, to LBJ. And there are, of course, many similarities. Huge difference. Robert Moses lost an election in New York by the largest majority ever. Lyndon Johnson went on to be elected to the presidency, I think, by the greatest margin uh, ever. Um, A remarkable elected politician. But many of the same characteristics, the attention to detail, the persuasive charm in private, uh, but the bullying attitude to people with less power uh, than themselves... And, and as we begin your first book, In the Path to Power, as we read the introduction to, uh, to your first book on, on Lyndon Johnson, it's very clear where you're going with it. You, you write there, he displayed a willingness to do whatever was necessary to win, a willingness uh, so complete that even in the generous terms of political morality, it amounted to amorality. Yeah. And we have a, and thank you for being generous about political, uh, <laughs> political morality. We have the same sort of character, don't we? This is a, it must attract you to write about people who know how to accumulate power, but whose characters are often ones that we would not admire. Yes, um, actually... I picked Lyndon Johnson, what your description is what I came to feel, but I picked Lyndon Johnson because I was very tired of writing about someone I didn't like. <laughs> <laughs> so what I thought of Lyndon Johnson was this poor boy from the Texas Hill Country <laughs> who did so much for the poor, Medicare, civil rights, and all. That's why I started those books. You know? So you did not know what's then set out in that um first volume, uh, how obsequious he was to people in authority over him at college, but how bullying he was to his own peers or people younger than him, how abominable he was to his wife and his staff. This was a revelation as as you went on. Yes, I could hardly believe it. When 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 Those of you who read about his college years know that his name was Bull Johnson for... uh, obvious reasons, that they said he was a man who could not stop lying. You'd catch him in a lie, and he'd, you'd, you'd hear him telling the same lie the next day. So um, you did find out these things about the stealing of the elections, you know, that went back through his entire life, stealing one election after another. The deeper you got into Johnson, the more uh, you saw these aspects of his character. At the same time, William, I have to say, you are filled with awe mm-hmm. at what he can do passing mm-hmm. the Civil Rights and the Voting Rights Act. It seems mm-hmm. impossible 
that anyone will get these things through, and he does it. And he did that, didn't he? He, he got those three things. I mean, to read another um, extract here of what you've written, you say, in the 20th century, with its 18 American presidents, Lyndon Baines Johnson was the greatest champion that black Americans and Mexican Americans and indeed all Americans of color had in the White House, the greatest champion they had in all the halls of government. He was to become the lawmaker for the poor and the downtrodden and the oppressed. He was to be the president who above all presidents save Lincoln codified compassion, the president who wrote mercy and justice into the statute books by which America was governed. Yes. And yet this is the same man this is who this. would steal an election and your, your whole uh, second volume on him almost is yeah. about the yeah. stealing of the Texas Senate race yeah. in, in 1948. So is, it that, is the perception we're left with unfair to him? Or is it just that... Um, People who exercise political power can combine these remarkable traits of huge achievements with grave flaws and an absence of morality. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry, that's that's a very long question. No, it's it's a very good question. It's a very hard one to answer. So I'm writing about a man who's a very unusual man. Uh, people are always asking me in the United States because they know in the United States we think more and more of Lyndon Johnson in terms of Vietnam and only in Vietnam, uh, only of Vietnam, which isn't fair to him. But people are always asking me, did he really believe in civil rights or was this just... Mm-hmm. Lyndon Johnson, of course, passed the first Civil Rights Act and passed the first Voting Rights Act, and he did it in an era when the South controlled the Senate of the United States. It seems impossible for anyone to do it, but, uh, but he did it. Um, you say, so people say to me, well, how do you know, you know that he was sincere in this? How do you know it just wasn't a political maneuver? You know, that, mm-hmm. Well, I'll tell you, I'll take a moment to tell you how I know, how I feel that I know, what convinces me anyway. So when he's in college, he's very poor. He has to take a year off from college to earn enough money to go on. And what he does is he goes, he he teaches in what was known as the Mexican school. It's the children of migrant workers, Mexican migrant workers, in South Texas, a little town called Catula. So I talked to a number of those children, and after that, I wrote the line, no teacher had ever cared if these kids learned or not. This teacher cared. And then you could say, because I keep asking myself, have you looked at this question from every side? So I said, well, maybe this is just an example of Lyndon Johnson doing what he always does, trying to do the best job in whatever job he had. But the reason that I felt that I knew that he meant it was that he didn't just teach the children, he taught the janitor. The janitor of the school, Johnson felt it was very important for all these kids to learn to speak English. They spoke Spanish. 
And so in a recess, if he heard through the window one of the boys saying something in Spanish, he'd run out of the classroom and spank him. And if it was a girl, he'd yell at her. But he also wanted the janitor to learn English. So he bought him a textbook. And the janitor says, the janitor's name was Tomas Coronado, and he says, Johnson bought me a book. He says, we would sit on the steps before and after school, the steps outside the school. He said, Johnson would pronounce, I would repeat. Johnson would spell, I would repeat. So I feel that this is a man who all through his life was determined to help poor people, and particularly poor people of color. We see in my last volume that he becomes president after Kennedy is assassinated. Kennedy has not been able, president Kennedy has not been able to get any bills through Congress. Mm-hmm. His entire legislative program is stopped because the Southerners control the 16 great standing committees in the United States Senate, and Southerners control in that year, if I have this number right, but it's approximately right, nine of the 16. No one's going to get anything through the Southern uh, bloc in Congress. Johnson becomes president. He has to give a speech three days after he's president uh, uh, to show he's taking over to Congress. His speech writers are sitting around the table. He hasn't even moved into the Oval Office yet. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before bring the arts home with marquee tv so the speech writers are sitting around his table in the dining room and he comes down around midnight to see what you probably had this experience to see what they've come up with and they say the one thing we know is don't touch civil rights don't mention civil rights Uh, It's a noble cause, but it's a lost cause, and you'll antagonize the Southerners. You won't get anything through Congress. It's a noble cause, but it's a lost cause. Don't fight for it. And Johnson says to them, what the hell is the presidency for then? In his speech, he says to Congress, our first priority is to pass a civil rights bill. As he says this, the Southerners are all sitting in front of him. It's amazing, Next, if you ever see a newsreel of this, to see the expression on their faces and how they cross their arms like this. But he gets it through. So that's the other side of Lyndon Johnson. Brilliant. Um, and just a, a word, before we open it up to the, um, to the questions of the audience, just a word about the process of of writing a book and the decision about how much to include and how much to explain of the context. When I sat down to write a a biography for the first time, I had a a wonderful lunch with the late Roy Jenkins, uh, one of our great biographers in this country. And he said, the first thing you need to know is the publishers will give you a word limit. And and the first thing you need to know about that is to take no notice of it whatsoever. (laughs) 
and, and indeed, if he hadn't said that, I wouldn't have had the confidence to write 100,000 words more oh. than uh, HarperCollins had uh, Great had advice. <laughs> he needed very good advice. But I don't know whether you met him as well or needed any of that advice, but... If reviewers ever criticize your books, they say, you know, there are whole chapters where the subject of the book never appears because we're learning the context. We have 65 pages on the Texas Hill Country. We have 100 pages on the history of the Senate. Now, to many admirers of your work like me, this is part of the joy of the books. And we are learning about the years of Lyndon Johnson, not just the life. Yeah. of Lyndon Johnson. But yeah. I wanted to give you an opportunity to hit back at those reviewers uh, as well. Um, clearly, you do believe it's important to set the context, give the history, allow people to understand the full background to the life of who you're writing about. Well, I think you just said it better than I could, actually. Well, I was that, dying that's to say I, it, That's what I believe. Yeah. <laughs> Good. I've hit back <laughs> at the reviewers. Um, they're not reviews that have made any difference to the... Uh, to the enormous success of your work. Um, But let's um, ask for some questions from our audience tonight, and we'll take them in groups of three. As I said, Bob has had a pretty demanding day, so he gets the politician's luxury of having questions in groups of three so he can then decide which one he most wants to respond to in the greatest detail. And we'll start over here on the front row, gentleman in the white shirt there. I can't see very well with the lights at the back, but we'll then go over to the back near the door, and then we'll come over to the aisle over here. Yes, sir. It's said that all power tends to corrupt, and absolute power tends to corrupt absolutely. I wonder if you've considered the constraints on power of a biographer. Sorry, the constraints on power of? The biographer. Oh. The power? The power of the biographer. <laughs> what are the constraints on the power of the biographer? And yes, uh, over here. Uh, well, my first question is, when is the last... No, uh, well, one question would be helpful. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there the, are a lot of people waiting to ask When questions. is the next book coming out, obviously? And the other question is, uh, what do you do to breathe life into your characters? Uh, when Robert Dalek's book came out, on Johnson, the reviewer said, one reviewer said that Mr. Carrow is able to uh, make his characters memorable in a way that uh, Robert Dalek, Mr. Dalek cannot. Uh, and I'm thinking right. of the Sam okay. Rayburn character. So how do you do that? Okay, right. We'll come back to um, one of those. It was a very quick question. And then, um, yes, over there. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for writing such amazing books, which really had a great impact on me when I was first reading them, I'm sure for lots of other people here. So thank you so much for that. Um, I think that in an interview you said that you met Johnson once, which was, I think you shook his hand or something. Yeah. When he was president, yeah. Um, if you could not necessarily have like a long chat with him, but if you could maybe even just ask him one question or talk to him about one issue, what would that be and how would it illuminate your knowledge of him? Right, well, right. Yeah. okay. Well, what uh, order would you like to take those in? There's well, what, um, the yeah. power of the biographer. Yeah. Can that be uh, yeah, is that and, something well, that is, needs constraint? Well, <laughs> you, don't, you, you don't think of yourself as having at least power. What you think of, but at some point you come to say, well, he's going to be remembered... If I, if I wrote it well enough so the book endures, then he's going to be known by this book. 
So you have to be fair to him. I remember I was talking earlier about thinking I have to show the other side of Robert Moses. I have to show the genius side of Robert Moses. So you're constantly thinking, am I being fair to him? Um, if that's the kind of... I mean, you, you are aware, you know, if your books have succeeded in lasting for a while, you are aware that um, his fate is in a way in your hands. Uh, I never forget that, actually. And uh, you really say, am I being... That this is what I say. Am I being... I, I write, sometimes write this on a piece of paper uh, and tack it on my... Uh, scotch tape it on my lamp. Are you being fair to him? Um, so really, that's a... Yes. Is there anything, Bob, on that? that, that sure. In a work of stretching over more than 30 years now yes. on literature, 30 years in the, in the writing of it, is there anything where you look back at the, at the earlier volumes right. and think, well... Maybe I would make a different judgment now. No, uh, I, I think I, because when I started this book, you know, that's what I did. I, I looked back over the other. I wouldn't change anything, mm-hmm. to tell you the truth. Mm-hmm. Right. And what and, about and, the um, um, the other questions? If you met Johnson oh, to ask him a, to discuss yeah. one thing with him, ask him one question, what would that be? Well, actually, it would be about his boyhood because I think the formative thing in Lyndon Johnson's life was that he idolized his father. Uh, his father, you know, had a re- or Johnson had an re- amazing physical resemblance to his father. They were both about six foot four. They both had huge ears. But more to the point, they both had this gesture of putting your, their arm around you and grabbing the lapel and leaning into you, you know, so his father was a very respected state legislator and Johnson used to campaign with him and he said the happiest days of my life were those days campaigning my father and I would drive from farmhouse to farmhouse and then we'd stop and have lunch by the side of the road just the two of us then his father makes one terrible mistake, a financial mistake. He loses the Johnson Ranch. They're poor for the rest. They're, so, they're terribly poor for the rest of their boyhood. And Johnson's attitude toward his father changes into one of real hatred. And I would ask him about what it felt like when your father failed. That's, that's what I would really like to hear what he had to say about and the, the question yeah, I about, didn't hear that uh, question. That, this question. Well, he sneaked in a little extra one. But um, <laughs> was, um, the, his main question was, how do you breathe life into these characters? Uh, uh, contrasting your work with other biographers who haven't necessarily breathed as much life into their oh, subjects. How do you think about that? Well, that's a very important question as, to me. As a matter of fact, it's the most important question because I think... There's not enough understanding in nonfiction today. I don't say I succeeded in doing this myself, but I think one of the things we should try to do that, that's not done enough is to try to make the books readable mm-hmm. by putting into them the same things that a great work of fiction uh, gets into it, a sense of place, a sense that you can see the people. So I'm always writing. I have this lamp in front of me that I write little things that I'm trying to remember on because you can't get your eyes off it. 
are you are, are people seeing Lyndon Johnson in, in whatever scene I'm doing? Are you are 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 they seeing Sam Rayburn if he's if he's the character, or are they seeing the Hill Country? Are you showing it to them, or are you just saying something about it? I don't think you can. I don't think people read things over the long period of time. I don't think it, it sinks into them as much if you tell them something, if you give them a lecture, as if you show them what really happened. Which you can do as a result of immense investigation and research. Mm-hmm. One of, your, of the hallmarks of your work is, is, is these are not only great works of history and biography, but immense works of investigative journalism as well. well and, uh, I think I'm not wrong in thinking that hundreds, maybe thousands of interviews have gone into these well, books. thousands of interviews. You're very kind. There are thousands of interviews. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah. It shows. <laughs> um, and what about the... Oh, uh, the and, ex- and, I'm, I, and, I'm always, and I'm always asking people, you know, what would I... If they dis- they're describing a scene that took place in Johnson's office or in the Senate clock room, I'm always saying to them, what did you see? What would I see if I was standing mm-hmm. next to you? Mm-hmm. That, that's, that's a question I keep asking. Right, let's, we can take some more questions. So we've got one over here. We, we can take a, a couple near together there, and then we'll go right to the back. Somebody holding up a... Uh, there's, there's a woman up in the... Oh, oh we have <laughs> questions in the back oh. benches up there as well. Uh, okay, we will go up there next. Yes, so over here, two over here to begin with. Can I ask about Vietnam? Do you think it was inevitable that Johnson would tread the road to disaster, particularly given the military advice he was receiving? Or was there a moment when he might have pulled back? Oh, right. Let, let's, okay. let's, get, let's stack up the others. Yes, sir. Um, given the amount of scrutiny that politicians have today, uh, even if someone had the skills and the personality of Robert Moses or Lyndon Johnson, could they wield power as effectively? Right. And what was the one uh, right at the back? Which of, which of Robert Moses or Lyndon Johnson were more effective at wielding power in their realms? Right. Okay. So you're invited to do, um, well, three things. Well, one of them really is a, is a continuation of what we were just mm-hmm. discussing. Would, would the scrutiny today yeah. um, of, um, uh, affect the, the ability of, of Moses and Johnson to do what they did? Would they what they did well there's a sophistication today you see I'm sort of uh, with talking in terms of very small increments I'm sort of feel there is more understanding there of, of power today than there was do you know do I think there's enough do I think uh, no obviously not but I do think we're becoming more sophisticated as nations mm-hmm. in looking at how political processes work. And what about leading you on to... Um, uh, one of our other questions was leading you on to the next okay. book, really, um, on Vietnam. Was it inevitable um, that he would follow the course that had already begun when he became president sure. uh, under Kennedy? Did he, was it military advice that led him deeper and deeper into Vietnam? Well, it's, uh, in, instead of trying... That, that would take an entire hour, William, to, to, to even... <laughs> but I'll tell you what's... In, in light of 
so many questions that you've asked about transparency and all. So Lyndon Johnson made his decisions on Vietnam. He didn't make them in the cabinet meetings, and he didn't make them in the meetings of the National Security Council. He made them at something called, he called the Tuesday lunch. People don't really know about it yet, but they will when my book comes out. So he would have lunch every Tuesday Tuesday at 1 o'clock with four, there would just be four people in the room. Uh, Robert McNamara, the Secretary of Defense, sat on his right, and next to him would be McGeorge Bundy, the National Security Advisor, until Johnson fired him, and then it was Walt Rostow. And on his left was the Secretary of State, Dean Rusk, and next to him, in full uniform, was the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, a guy named Earl Wheeler. So for a long time, Johnson would not course, allow minutes to be taken at the, but he finally had to allow a secretary to come into the room and sit against the wall, because if you're taking decisions, <laughs> someone has to write down what they are. If you deciding to bomb certain villages, someone has to write down the name of the villages. If you're sending a, a battalion to Vietnam, someone has to, has to write it down. So... I've read, all, I've read all the notes that there are on these meetings, and I think you do see uh, an answer to the other question. Were there turning points? It's all, yes, there were many turning points. There are so many times when I'm reading these notes when you say, look at all these arguments. Look at what people are saying. Obviously, they're going to de-escalate. Obviously, they're going to stop the bombing. But no. It seems like over and over again they escalate and go on. I think the lessons of Vietnam have, to some extent, sunk in in the United States. And um, I think it's a great example of uh, we will have an opportunity, we have much more of an opportunity than we used to examine, to examine the processes by which governments go to war. Has it worked so far? You know, I think I, I, w- I wouldn't go so far as to say that. I just think, think we're slowly getting more and more of an understanding of how things work. That's my hope. Anyway. And the, the third questioner asked you to, invited you to, to compare the two, to compare your two subjects. Well, as to which was most effective at exercising power in their respective yeah, realms? Yeah, that, that, that's a great question. So you take these two men, you could not get two more opposite human beings. Robert Moses was the intellect. He was the great, he, he had a great intellect. Um, when he couldn't get elected to anything, he didn't like to deal with people. Moses, they said, you know, someone once said of him, he loves humanity and hates human beings. He didn't want to be touched. I see, I think of the two of them in gestures. Moses didn't want anyone touching him or hugging him. I remember during one of the few occasions in which I actually got to talk to him, there were, there were only seven, uh, he was having a luncheon for a bunch of politicians, and one politician comes sort of rushing over to him. You know how politicians are to hug him. And Moses instinctively, without thinking about it, goes like this. He doesn't want the man to touch him. Johnson is the very opposite. He, wants, he said, I want to feel them, I want to he- smell them, I want to hear them. He'd put his arm around people, he'd take the lapel, and he'd pull his face r- right into them. So Moses did things, in an intell- got power through the intellect, through the writing of laws no one could understand. 
Lyndon Johnson got power through personality, through bending people to his will. Yet both these men had the same aim. They both wanted power. And they both had huge things that they wanted to do with them. So I'm, I'm not sure what the bottom line of that question was. I they think. were both pretty effective at it. They, were, they, the, were, um, they, were, both, they were both amazingly effective at it. You wrote it to, to quote to you again on Johnson. You said, he not only had the gift of reading men and women, of seeing into their hearts, he also had the gift of putting himself in their place, yes. of not just seeing what they felt, but of feeling what they felt, almost as if what had happened to them had happened to him yes. too. Yes. We've we, had one or two leaders like that as like well the, in, in yes. the UK. Mm. Yes. i leave the audience guessing who I mean uh, <laughs> uh, about that. But yeah. that is part of the, in the exercise of political power, that is part of the, of the skill. Yes, uh, Johnson was mar- marvelous. And when he would say, th- you know, like he wants to get Hubert, he wants to pass the first Civil Rights Act. And he's now president. And Hubert Humphrey, who's a very ineffective senator, he's for civil rights, but he never gets anything accomplished is going to have to get this bill, play a key role in getting this bill through Congress. Johnson calls him in and he says to Humphrey, you know, you're not going to be able to do it. You never took the trouble to learn the rules. And Humphrey says in his own memoir, he says, damn it, he had sized me up perfectly. He knew what would get me to do it. I went, he said, he just knew how to make me do it. So who, Humphrey goes out and becomes a different leader. Yes, mm-hmm. Johnson, over and over again, people who are honest say, Johnson saw right through me. He knew what would work. Yeah. <laughs> right, let's take, uh, we've only got about uh, eight or nine minutes left, so we'll take some more, because there was one up there uh, to begin with, and yep. then we'll come down to let's, where we've not been uh, before uh, we'll be able to go there just in from the aisle and uh, right in the front row here as well Um, two of the criticisms, well one of the criticisms laid at the two people have been for a lack of morality but whether it's admirable um, or for whatever reason, do you think it's possible to truly wield the effective type of power that they did and achieve what they did while maintaining a uh, classic sense of morality? For example, would anyone else, if they couldn't bully, pressure, lie, have passed the Civil Rights Act, for example? Mm-hmm. Very good question. Mm-hmm. And then, um, there. I guess it's slightly similar to the last question, but mm-hmm. given our conversation this evening, would you argue that the definition of real political power is the ability to organise some issues into politics whilst ensuring others are organised out? Organizing some issues into politics and others organized out is an interesting way of thinking about it. And then we're right in the front row here. Um, Sorry to ask a rather more gossipy question than these very great ones happening here, but Robert Moses thought his legacy would be what he built. But by and large, it's actually for being the subject of the power broker. Um, What did he feel about that and did his thoughts on it change over time at all? Right, you, you might want to do that one first, Bob, the, the, um, because you met Robert Moses, yes. as you just yes. mentioned, and I think the, he wasn't very enthusiastic about you <laughs> writing about him, um, but had to cooperate to some degree in the end. Um, 
But um, well, uh, 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 this uh, what, is yeah, the, uh, the heart of the question. Just say again. You know, the, you know. What did you think about his legacy largely being the subject of your yeah. What, what did he think about your yeah. book becoming well, his he legacy? Ha- well, he hated my book, did you know? <laughs> Robert Mo- well, it's, it, it's an interesting thing. So Moses had been in power for 40-some years when I started. No biography. Well, only one what we would call an American, a puff job, a PR job by someone who got a retainer from him, actually. Because many people had started biographies, had gotten contracts, including some famous people to, to write biographies of him. And he basically said to them what he said to me. He said, I will never talk to you. No member of my family will ever talk to you. None of my friends will ever talk to you. Then he had some line, which I can never quite remember his wording, but the gist of it is, no one who ever wants a contract from the city or state will ever talk, will ever talk to you. So he was really terribly afraid of a book. Uh, I think he was mostly afraid because he, he had a great secret in his life which he really didn't want anyone to know, which is what he did to his brother. Those of you who have read the book, he cut his brother out of his mother's will so that the brother lived in poverty for the rest, for the rest of his life. And he, he, uh, this was something Moses really didn't want. Uh, as far as his legacy is concerned... He, he had, as far as my book is concerned, he hated the book. You know, he never stopped attacking the book. He died uh, about eight years after the book came out at the age of 92. And the last thing, and I, I, he, was, he was fine till the end mentally. The last thing he, would, he did was writing a two-page single-spaced letter attacking my book. That's, that's, that's practically the last thing that he did. His legacy was terribly important to him. He was always saying, I will be remembered like the Caesars of Rome. You know, uh, he, uh, he believed that. So I don't know mm-hmm. well, in a what way, he, he would feel. Mm-hmm. Pardon me? He, he is remembered like one or two of the Caesars. Yes. <laughs> I don't think they're the ones he was thinking of. <laughs> exactly. Different Caesars. Um, and what about the, the fascinating question from um, up at the top there about, is it necessary to be like this to get results? Is it, is it, yes. Would it be possible to pass yes. the Civil Rights Act when he did, in, yeah. in, the, in Johnson's case, um, without this approach to, to politics. After you know, all, uh, you know, you know, JFK wasn't getting very far with a lot of these things. That's right. You know, that's a question I think about a lot, and I simply, I, I really don't know the answer to that question. Uh, you, you do take, there are people who, you know, when I said before that Lord, Lord Acton said, all power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And I don't think that's always the case. What I think power always, well, power always reveals, but I think power, as well as corrupting, I think power can cleanse. So we could take uh, a governor like Alfred E. Smith of New York, whom most of you will not have heard of, but he was a Tammany henchman, one of the worst, Tammany was the most, supposed to be the most vicious and venal of the American political machines in New York. It was an Irish machine. It elevated to Governor Al Smith, the first Irish Catholic to hold a 
governorship in the United when he becomes governor, he goes to the Tammany boss and says to him, I'm condensing a whole long story too short, he goes to the Tammany boss, a man named Silent Charlie Murphy, and says to him, now you have to free me because I have to be able to show what we can do, what we can do for our people. And Smith then turns into, as a governor, he creates uh, widows and and children's benefits, uh, first unemployment and uninsurance, uh, really the first version of workman's disability, and so many other things, uh, that Roosevelt, when he, Franklin Roosevelt, when he becomes president, went after he's president for a while, says to Francis Perkins, the Secretary of Labor, you know, Francis, 95% of everything we've done in the New Deal, Al Smith did first in New York. So I've written about a number of figures that when you write about them, you say, oh, they were just waiting to get power to do something for their people. I think that does happen. But in answer to your question, could they have done these specific things? I never, I think about it a lot, and I just don't know the answer. I don't know what I think about it. And what about, we had a question about, um, is exercising power about... um Organizing some issues into politics and some out of it, I think was, was how our questioner put it. I'm not quite sure how you go about answering that question, but well, you will have a go. Well, yes. I, Johnson brought... Well, I'll do it in terms of Lyndon Johnson, or, mm-hmm. or you could really do it in terms of Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, no one had really thought of a socialist... Well, uh, let me do it in terms of Johnson. Yeah. <laughs> The other one I have to explain <laughs> too, too, much, uh, too much background. Johnson, what I said, what the hell's the presidency for? What is he really asking them? What's the question that he is replying to in, that, in his kitchen that night? It's a noble cause, but don't fight for it. Johnson is really saying, no. Civil rights appears dead, and it certainly did appear dead. When, when Jack Kennedy was assassinated, civil rights was not going to go through the Congress. Johnson is really saying, no, I'm going to make it a cause. I'm going to keep fighting for it. Um, Johnson did that with other things as well. Um, all these education bills, everybody said we can't have any education bills because the federal government will interfere with, uh, with the state's rights in, 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 with independence, uh, the independence of individual school districts. Johnson really said, no, look, what, look at right now, poor people and even many middle class people cannot go to college. Uh, it does, we have to make it possible. He passed 70 separate... Everything we think of as federal aid to education, he made the issue. So when he appoints... And I'll answer your question by, by, by quoting someone else, which is, I think, the perfect... is the correct answer to your question. So he appoints Thurgood Marshall, the first black to the Supreme Court, and it's a time when it seems like the, it's just impossible that anything like this is, gonna, is going to happen. And Thurgood Marshall, when, he, when Johnson tells him this, says, thank you, Mr. President, you didn't wait for the times, you made them. So I think with all the things about Johnson that you say and that I've said tonight that are vicious on one side, 
you really say he had a capacity, a great capacity, to make liberal causes, uh, social causes, noble causes, part of the national conversation. I think I'll leave it like that. Well, Bob, we owe it to you to uh, finish on time, and so we're going to do that, or a couple of minutes uh, over time. I'm sorry we couldn't get in all the questions. Uh, we've learned a great deal, I think, from listening to you tonight. We learn even more uh, from, from reading the wonderful books that you've produced over the last few decades. I think everyone here urges you on with the next volume uh, of Lyndon Johnson, but we will wait patiently for that. Uh, and we're enormously grateful for all your insights and time this evening. It's been an honor and a privilege for me and a delight, I know, for everybody here. So we wish you well and we thank you deeply. Tonight. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligent Square podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.